We started a series uh, through the book of Romans uh, a few months ago. Uh, every year we really try to delve into scripture and see what it will teach us about Jesus and about the gospel and about our own selves. And so this morning, even though for a few weeks we, we took a pause on Romans because we had Easter and we had guest speakers and we've had a few special moments here in the life of our church, um, a worship gathering and a few other things. Um, but today we're going to be heading back into this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and, and he wrote this letter really just to describe the gospel, to lay out the gospel, and to, to tell the church what the message of the Bible really is. Many people interpret the Bible in different ways. They read the Bible in different ways, and they take different things from the Bible, but there's one thing that God wants us to see in the Bible, and it's Jesus and His grace and what the message of the cross really is. And so Paul writes this letter to make sure that nobody gets this wrong. He wants all of us to know what the gospel is, and he declares it in such a beautiful way. And so we are heading back into the book of Romans this morning. Um, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles here, uh, to open them up to Romans 5, uh, which is where we ended off last time uh, when I shared a message called, Therefore, the Hope of Glory. Uh, Therefore, the Hope of Glory. We got to this point where Paul had shared some incredibly important things that we are to believe and that we are to know if we're going to walk in a relationship with God. If we're going to have a right perspective on who we are and who God is and how we get to journey with Him, how our lives are changed, how we are made alive together with Christ, if we're going to be Christians that are walking our lives in truth, that are walking in a true faith, then there are some key things that we need to know. And so Paul starts out, he writes this letter, and he has pointed out some of these really critical things to us already in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. He wants us to have the right perspective on God so that we can have and walk in the right kind of relationship with God. And so this morning, before we, we delve into Romans 5, before I get to that verse, I just want to share three things that, that I, I believe that we need to have if we're going to have a right perspective, if we're going to have a faith that's based in truth, if we're going to be secure and firm in our belief, if we're going to stand against all the temptations and the trials and the philosophies and the, and the winds of change that blow through our lives, if we're going to be steadfast in what we believe, if we're going to be grounded and rooted in truth, these are some of those things. And the first thing that we need, if you're going to walk with God in a right relationship, is an honest view of yourself. You need an honest view of yourself. I don't know if um, you've ever encountered this, if, you've, if you're married, I'm sure you've encountered this many times over, but one of the most frustrating things is when you can see that somebody is wrong and that they can't see that they're wrong. Like when you can, when you can see, when you so outright no, but you're wrong. You're, you're, you don't have the perspective. You, you don't understand and you, you're trying to help them. You're like, hey, let me show you how wrong you are. And, and, then, and they just don't get it. They're like, no, I'm right. No, I've got this. Now I've got it down. It can be ultra frustrating, especially from a leadership position when, when you've got experience or when, or when you, know, you, wanna, you can see very clearly where this route's going and you're trying to help people and they, they just don't want to receive it. But can I tell you what's more frustrating than that? than knowing that others are wrong and trying to point it out. What's more frustrating than that is finding out that you were wrong all along, right? What's more frustrating than knowing that others are wrong is finding out later on, after you have staked your claim to how right you are, how wrong you actually were. And I've been there many, many times. Uh, in fact, um, I, I, I'm, I'm 
kind of bold in when I think I'm right, and so oftentimes I've had to backtrack like miles when I found out I was actually wrong. And as I was thinking about this, one of the clearest moments I remember was actually in high school when I was playing rugby, and we were playing this game, and it was a really tight game, and we were up, we were ahead, but in my mind, I had miscalculated the score, and I thought we were ahead further than what we were. And so when I looked over at the scoreboard, I saw that the scorers had got the score on the board wrong. And I was like, they're putting this whole game in jeopardy. If we lose this game because they've got the wrong score on the board, you know, I'm going to be so mad and and it's going to be just this tragedy. And so every time I ran by the scoreboard, I abused the scorers. And I remember at one point shouting out, you've got it wrong, get it right, you know, and and them just like looking at each other and it's like, we don't know what to do because this is the score. And then only when I finished the game, the coach was like, no, that's the score. Remember this happened? And I was like, okay, yeah, so I was wrong there. And I was hurling abuse at the scorers thinking that they had it wrong. Um, with, in marriage, this happens all the time. When we were in the U.S. now, friends of ours organized um, some discounted tickets for us to go to Universal Studios. Um, it normally costs like $250 a person to go uh, for both parks in, in, in Universal, and obviously that, that's a lot of money. And so uh, a friend of ours, she actually works there. She, does, she sings there from time to time. And so um, they organized these tickets for us. And when I was doing the budget, I clearly remembered she said that the price that she could get it for us uh, at was $50 per person. So I thought $50, okay, it's, it's still a lot, but that's a great you know, thing to do for a day. Uh, we've never been to Universal Studios and checked it out. So, so I budgeted $100 for this. And so uh, before we got to Florida, before we got to go to Universal, my wife and I sat down and we did a recon of our budget and how the money had worked out and everything. And And so I told her, but we still need $100 for Universal. And she said, no, it was $50 per couple. And I was like, there is no ways that it's $50 per couple. It's so expensive. There's no ways that you got it wrong. It's definitely $50 per person. And she was like, I'm going to check on the messages. And I was like, you go ahead and check on the messages. And so she went back, and then all of a sudden, you know, some people are, are, are gracious in victory. Um, my wife, not so much. And she, so she was like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You see, here it is. Here it is. It's $50 per couple. And so I came back um, from the U.S. two foot massages in debt um, as a result of that. But this is the thing, um, when, you, when you are going, if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to walk with each other, we have to recognize that sometimes we are wrong, that sometimes we haven't got it all figured out, that sometimes we genuinely need help. And when it comes to the gospel, what the, what the book of, of, of Romans declares and what the gospel declares is that we need help all of the time, that we are completely unrighteous apart from what Jesus has done for us. And there is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. This is not, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 90% good, and so I just need 10% Jesus to make up the gap for the areas that I'm not so great at. You're completely deceived in that kind of thinking. And, and, and Paul starts out Romans by saying, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks him, no one who understands. There's nothing in us that's good that dwells in our flesh. And so we need to have an honest view of ourselves, and that hurts. Come on, nobody wants to admit when they're wrong. Nobody wants to say, yeah, you know what, I actually need help. It's difficult for us to be honest about these things. What helps us, though, in being honest and having an honest view of ourselves 
is the message of the gospel. Because what the message of the gospel declares is that you are more wrong than you could even have imagined. Even right now, sitting in your seat, even if you've been a Christian for years, you're still more wrong than what you know. You're still more naturally sinful than what you can even imagine. But at the same time, you're more loved and you've, you've been redeemed to a greater measure than what you can even understand, right? So now I get to be honest because it doesn't matter how wrong I am, I've been redeemed to a greater measure. There's more grace wherever my sin has abounded. Wherever sins abound, abounds, so much more grace abounds. So now I don't have to pretend anymore like I'm perfect. I don't have to walk around going, no, no, I've got it all down. I can actually be wrong and be okay with being wrong because I know that I'm loved. Because I know that my wrongness didn't cause God to reject me. In fact, he sent his son to die for me so that I can be right with him today. But I'm right with him not because I'm right, but because Jesus is right and Jesus has made me right. So we need to have an honest view. If you don't know that you're a sinner, you won't know that you need a savior. So stop lying to yourself about yourself, get honest and get to God because that's how he saves us. So you need to know, you need to have an honest view of yourself. And that's what brings us to the second thing that you desperately need if you're gonna walk with God is an accurate view of God. You need an honest view of yourself and an accurate view of God because people have different ideas about God. They have different philosophies about who God is, how he works, what he values, how he operates, how he relates to us as broken, sinful people. But one of the biggest questions in, in, in humanity, the biggest question after where did we come from is we must have come from somewhere and if there is a God, what is he like? What is God like? Every culture uh, through all the ages have had an idea of God without necessarily having an accurate view of God. And that can be fatal. Having an idea that there is a God but not knowing what he is like, where does that leave us? What is his heart and his intentions towards us as people? Does he love some people more than others? Is he prejudiced in any way? Can he easily be swayed? Will he ever turn his back on us? Does God care more about white people than he does about black people or black people than he does about white people? Does he care more about rich people than he does about poor people? Or maybe he favors the poor and, and stands against the rich. Does he, does he have any kind of, of shadow of turning within himself? Is he prejudiced or fickle or easily swayed? The problem is, that if you're not honest about the fact that your views can be wrong, you won't admit it or realize it when you have a wrong view about God. You will take your view of God as gospel. And what you'll ultimately believe is not the gospel, but yourself. And you will judge God according to your own human understanding. People do that with morality all the time. Well, I can't serve a God who would do that. Or I can't, I can't agree with the Bible because it includes this. And what we're ultimately saying is that we are more moral than God. We are greater judges of morality than God himself who revealed and instilled morality in each of our hearts. The author of morality. We're judging the author of morality. That's what we're doing. 
is there of chance that the creator of heaven and earth, the God who, who, who set all things into motion, who put the, the spiritual desire and the desire for justice and truth and righteousness in our hearts, is there a chance that his sense of morality and justice is slightly more developed than ours? Can we admit that sometimes our views of God are wrong and that we need an adjustment in who we believe God to be? If you don't, you'll believe your views of God more than what God declares himself to be. You'll start believing that God is just waiting to punish you because you'll see him as, as vindictive and as vengeful. When the truth is, is that he sent the son, his son to die for us while we were still sinners. So do you know that God actually reveals himself in scripture? He tells us in so many words who he is. We don't have to guess about this anymore. We don't have to wonder who he is. We know. He revealed himself in scripture and through the person of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest statement of the value in the heart and the character of God that humanity has ever known or seen or come to understand. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you see him healing the sick, when you see him loving the unloved, when you see him dying for those who were spitting on him and forgiving them in his final moments, you see God. That's what God is like. God is like Jesus. Jesus is God. He revealed God's heart. But even in the Old Testament, God is determined to make himself known to humanity. In Exodus 34 verse 6, and this is quite possibly the most quoted scripture by scripture, so many times the scriptures themselves refer back to this scripture when God reveals himself to Moses by saying this. In Exodus 34 6, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Just pause there for a moment, just leave that scripture up there. The Lord, the Lord, which is actually his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, merciful and gracious. How incredible is it that we know, for example, that all the omnis, have you heard the, of the omnis? You know, God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omnipotent, he has all power, he's omniscient, he knows all things. But how amazing is it that even though God is all of those things, he doesn't start with a single omni. He doesn't go, I'm the all-powerful, the almighty, the... He goes, I am God, merciful and gracious. It's the first thing that he says about himself. The first thing he says about himself. People go, well, you, you shouldn't emphasize the grace of God too much. You shouldn't emphasize his mercy too much. Hang on, it's the first thing that God said about himself. He is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Not just love, but steadfast love. Abounding in it. And faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, he won't ever be unrighteous in his judgments. He won't ever just say, oh, we, you know, you're, you're definitely guilty, you've definitely sinned, but it's okay, it's okay. He is righteous, but in his righteousness, he found a way to forgive without sidestepping his righteousness. This is the God who we serve. This is who we worship. 
our human version of that scripture sounds something like this. So often we shift this and we say, the Lord, the Lord, vindictive and vengeful, quick to judge and hard to please. Always demanding that we be steadfast and perfect, only forgiving those who do everything right. Now that might not have been a scripture that you typed out and stuck on the inside of your cupboard, but that's definitely how a lot of people view God. Vindictive, vengeful, hard to please, quick to judge, impatient, expecting more of me than what I can give. That's why people turn away from God, because they're not actually turning away from God. They're turning away from their own views about God. They're rejecting something that's not true. So if we're gonna worship the God of truth, we have to worship Him in truth. We have to know who He is and worship Him according to who He truly is and declares Himself to be. So we need an honest view of ourselves we need an accurate view of God. And then number three, we need a revelation of the gospel. We need a revelation of the gospel because that's how we understand how God, who is righteous and true and will by no means clear the guilty, is able to forgive the sins and impute righteousness or accredit righteousness or give righteousness as a free gift to all of us. How does he do that without sidestepping his own sense of justice? He did it by sending his son to the cross. He did it by sending Jesus in the form of man to the cross. And when Jesus hung on the cross in that moment, he was completely judged and punished for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus in that moment. And so God did punish the sins of the guilty, except he punished them in Jesus. Jesus paid the price for us. And that's the gospel. You need to have a revelation of the gospel. And this is what Paul is essentially saying in these first few chapters in the book of Romans, he says, we've got to understand that we're guilty before God. He starts with Romans 1 and 2, and he begins to describe how all of the world is guilty before God. By the time he gets to 3, he says, so all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. There is no one righteous, not even one. And then he says, but, but the gift of God, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is that by grace we have been made right. God took us as sinful people and by his grace he made us right. Because we're so sinful, we could never have even obeyed our way into his, his goodness or into, into his favor, into his mercy. We could never have done enough. And this is even what Paul says. He says that now a righteousness, apart from the law, it's not your observance to the law and to doing good things that's gonna make you right with God. It's not gonna work. You've gotta be honest about this. You need a savior. And so God made a way for us to be right with him because we could do nothing to make ourselves right with him. He has forgiven us without merit, without us having to earn it in our own strength. And this is a gift of God. We've been redeemed and therefore we have a new life and this hope of glory. And that's essentially what Paul covers in these first five chapters of, of Romans. And he ends off the book of Romans, and this is what I wanna uh, finish off on today, is that he ends off 
the chapter five of Romans by making this point absolutely clear and by declaring that this good news, that this message, that this gospel, that this grace is for everyone. That's the title of my message today. This is for everyone. This is for everyone. This message, this grace, this opportunity to be right with God is for you no matter where you come from, what you've done, how many times you've sinned, how many times you've messed up, what your socioeconomic background is, what language you are, what color you are, it doesn't matter, it's for everyone. It's for all. This is what we have. So Romans 5 and verse 12, and we're gonna do these last few verses in Romans 5 today, but Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, big therefore, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and even so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now there's a lot in there, and this is one of the reasons why even Peter writes about Paul's writings, and he says Paul's letters are weighty and difficult to understand right? That's why we're doing this together, because you can read that and go, cool, cool, I have no idea what it says. I have no clue what that's even about. What is the whole reigning Adam, Moses thing? I don't get it, okay? That's okay. That's why we're here this morning. But he goes on, and I'll get into the rest of that verse now in a moment. Um, But let's start off with this. He says that death came through one man. Death entered, entered into the world through one man, and that one man was Adam. When Adam was in the garden, God created Adam to have a relationship with him. God created people as relational spiritual beings because they were there to have relationship with God. And God is spirit, and so the Bible says that God took Adam, and that word Adam from the Hebrew is Adamah, which means from the earth, from the ground, and he fashioned him from the dust of the ground, and then Adam was a living person, but did not yet have the spirit of God in him, and God then breathed his Ruach spirit, his life, into Adam, and Adam became alive. Now Adam is not just a biological creature, but he is a spiritual being who has the ability to be in a relationship with the creator who is spirit. That's why the Bible says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so yes, we have a physiological, biological presence on this earth. We have a body and our bodies respond to the elements like in cold days in Joburg like today. We, we feel that because we are people and we live in this physical world. But more than that, we are spiritual beings created to have a relationship with our Father. And so the scripture says so beautifully that Adam would walk with God in the cool of the afternoon. Just take a walk with God. That's what he was created to do, beyond anything else that you have been created to do, beyond the mission that God will have for your life, beyond your calling, beyond uh, the people that you will reach, beyond anything else, the primary function of your life is to walk with God, to have a relationship with Him. And so if you're just going about your daily business, just getting in your car, going to work, uh, doing your business, you know, going home, uh, eating your meal, getting back into bed, if that's just what your life consists of, you are missing out on what the substance of your presence here on earth is really about. And it's why we have an entire 
humanity, an entire uh, species of people that feel so unfulfilled, that feel so dissatisfied with what they can get out of this life because you were created to have a relationship with God and to walk with Him like Adam did. And so Adam walked with God and the Bible says that he was completely innocent, so innocent that he didn't know the difference even between, between right and wrong. There, there, was no, there was no evil. He, he didn't have knowledge of good and evil. He only knew good. He only knew God. I often think about this whenever I see my kids running around like naked in the streets. Like my kids have no problem with nudity, especially the, the little ones. You'll see that with little children. They don't have shame. They don't know that there's something called shame. And that's what Adam was like in the garden, completely innocent in his walk with God. And so he came to a place where Satan tempted him to long for more than what he already had. Satan deceived Adam by telling him that what you have is not enough. You need more than that. If you're gonna be completely fulfilled, you can't just find your fulfillment in God. You need it in what else is out there for you to receive. You need independence. And that's the same lie that the devil still catches us with. Yeah, God is great. Go, go to church on Sunday. That's fine. Enjoy it. You know, do, but actually where you're going to get fulfilled is when you go out and you, you, you gain and you gather and you, you store up for yourself. That's going to really fulfill you. And so people sacrifice the fulfillment that they can find in Jesus and in God and in the gospel for what they can find in this world. It's the same deception. And in that deception, Adam sins against God and that sin breaks the relationship between him and God. He was created to walk with God and now he is separated from him, which is spiritual death. He dies on the inside. Death in enters into humanity. At first it was spiritual death and later it became physical death, but he dies spiritually in that instant. And what the scriptures tell us is that through this one man, through this one bit of disobedience, sin spread to all of us. So when we're born, we might have, have dreams of doing good and doing right. And, and, and I think there, there's, there's a sense in us of what is right and true that comes from God. But we do not find the ability to overcome sin. We do the stuff that we hate to do. And the stuff that we, that we want to do, we don't find the strength to do it. Like if there was just like a, a magic thing that says, just, hey, right now you can just like never do anything that you don't want to do again or never uh, again do something that you don't want to do. Like I mean, all of us would go, yeah, yeah, let, sign me up for that. Because what we find is even though we know what's right and we know what's wrong, we're slaves to that sin that we're born with because death spread to all of us. It's not something that any of us can overcome in our own strength. That's why you never have to teach people to sin. They'll just sin naturally. I don't have to send my kids to sin seminar to teach them to be selfish. One of the first words after mama and dada is mine. They don't wanna listen. They just do that all by themselves without me having taught them how to sin. 
And this is why we as people, if we have an honest view of ourselves, we would say that we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with it because we're born into it and therefore we're born into death. We're born into the same separation from God that Adam experienced. Do you know how sinful we really are? We're so sinful that we actually deny that we're sinful. In spite of all the evidence against us, we're like, no, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. But what about that time you stole that stuff or you were dishonest about that or you lied about that person? No, 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 but I don't do that all the time. That was just, you know, I'm still a good person. Our fallen state is so bad that we can't even come to a place of being honest about what's happening in our hearts. And that's the problem. The seat of sin in our lives is not in what you do, right? That's the symptom of sin. That's the fruit of sin. The root of it is what's happening in our hearts. Where condemnation reigns and where, and where sin and, 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 and the flesh is at its most powerful. It's in our own hearts. And so that's why Jesus says, you've heard the law. The law says don't kill. We all know it's not good to kill. But I tell you that if you have hated your brother in your heart, you are a murderer because that's where the sin lies. That's where the issue is. That's where the problem is. It's in our hearts. And so it's not just the act of sin, but it's the intent of sin. It's the heart of sin that we have to deal with. And God didn't want to do a superficial work in our lives. He doesn't want to come and just modify your behavior. Oh, you're killing people. Please, can you stop killing people? If you're killing people, it'd be a good thing to stop, all right? If you're here this morning, just don't kill people. But God didn't just come to stop you from killing people. He came to change your heart so that you no longer have hatred in it towards your brother. That you can actually love people truly and honestly and sincerely. That you can forgive when you are wronged. That you can walk in grace towards others rather than imposing your own will all of the time and you're reserving your rights all of the time and standing on your own ground all of the time. You're willing to be the least and do what the scriptures say. Consider others as more important than yourself. So God came to deal with the heart of sin. But in order to reveal sin for us, in order to prove to us that we definitely need him to help us, he gave us a benchmark Because we said, no, God, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need grace. I don't need salvation. I don't need somebody to die for me on the cross. I am fine by myself. God said, okay, if you want to be righteous, here is my bare minimum standard. Here's the law. And he gives 613 laws to Moses, ceremonial laws, ritual laws, uh, all kinds of laws to Moses. He says, keep these laws then if you want to live. If you want to save yourself, see if you can keep all of these. And so what Paul is saying in the scripture when he says that sin was in the world before the law was given, but they didn't understand that it was sin because the law wasn't given yet. What he is saying is that we were all sinful, we just didn't know it and we tr- until we tried to be good. And then we realized, oh yeah, 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 I'm not actually so good. If you're still not convinced about your own sinfulness, just give yourself some, some, some markers. Just say, okay, for a week, for two weeks or for a month, I won't have any angry thoughts or words towards people. 
I won't lose my temper once. I won't lust after anything, not even once. I won't step out of line even once. Just try for a week. Just try for a day even. Keep score for yourself. You'll quickly see that you need a savior. And so sin was always in us. It was in the world from the beginning. But only when the law came did we understand that we needed a savior. Before that though, sin was equally destructive in how it destroyed humanity and its relationship with God. So sin reigned from Adam all the way to Moses. Moses is the one who received the law. That's what that scripture means. It reigned. Think about that language for a moment. Sin reigned. That's like a king sitting on a throne, ruling over the land. Sin reigned. Death reigned over all of humanity. We were just paupers. We were pawns. We were slaves to sin. Sin and death sat in the throne over humanity. In fact, when Paul writes this in the, in the Greek, it actually has a little bit of a, um, it's a, it's a personification of death. Death is described as a person, almost as an enemy against humanity. Death reigned over humanity. But then he gets to the good news right in that last sentence. He says, but Adam was only a type. Adam was only a type. A type means a form or a shadow of what was to come. If you think about Adam, Adam was the first created human being and therefore the father or the ancestor of all of mankind. Every race, every generation has, can trace its roots back to Adam. Whether you live in Africa or Europe or Asia or Australasia or the Americas or any piece of land, anywhere on earth, we all come from Adam. And through that one man's sin, every person in every nation on every corner of the world was condemned to live in death and separation from God. Through one man's sin, all were condemned. But he was just a type. He continues in verse 15 saying, but the free gift, but the free gift of God's grace, but the free gift of salvation, but the free gift of righteousness being imputed, but the free gift of forgiveness is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more. Everybody say, much more. It doesn't matter how much sin, it doesn't matter how powerful sin was, it doesn't matter how incredibly big the the separation was, it doesn't matter how big the chasm between us and God was, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, much more. As much as we as humanity have been separated from God through one man, Adam, he was just a type of the one man, Jesus. And through him, through that one man's obedience, many have received grace and and justification from God. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The reason why he says it's not like is because it's so much greater. The free gift is so much bigger. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The abundance of grace. I noticed something there when I was reading this. Paul calls our redemption and the gospel a free gift. And I thought to myself, that's so redundant. Because whoever gives a gift and go, here's a gift, can you please pay for it now, right? Except for, you know, telemarketers and televangelists. Nobody else does that. Nobody else says, you know, here's a free gift, okay, but now you have to pay. Or we'll start deducting. I remember once getting a bry set and my cousin gave my name and I was like, why? Why give my name to these people? But he gave my name up and then I received a free bry set. And I thought the bry set was pretty cool. So I kept it. And then at the end of the month, they took like 300 rand off my account. And then I didn't realize that along with the gift came a letter that said that if I didn't phone and, 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 and decline this option, that they would just start deducting money from my account. And so I paid 300 rand for this thing. And I was gonna pay every month for the rest of my life. I don't even know what it was about. So Paul makes sure that you understand this, that what God gave you is not just a gift, but it's a free gift. And we need to know that because when people understand the gospel, when they look at the gospel, they go, oh yeah, God offers me grace. But the moment I take it, he goes, oh, but now you have to do this. Like a bait and switch, like a telemarketer. Oh, uh, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But now you have to do this. (laughs) But I thought I was just, no. (laughs) He wants you to know that your righteousness and the grace of God in your life does not have any strings attached. It's purely by his, his goodness. It's a free gift, a free gift. The gospel has no payment required because Jesus has already paid it in full. I pray to God that he would take the truth of this and impress it in your heart so powerfully that you'll never forget it again. You do not pay for the grace of God. You do not pay for your salvation. He says, it's not like the trespass that came through one man which leads to condemnation. The grace of God does not lead you back into condemnation. In fact, Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what if I sin? What if I mess up again? Your sin has been forgiven. Acknowledge your sin Talk to God about it and move on because it's not who you are. You've got to grow in your righteousness, not constantly be focused on your sinfulness. We've got to have a Christ consciousness, not a sin consciousness. The gift doesn't bring death, it brings justification. Here's Paul's point. How does the gift of grace and justification come to us? Just like the one man's trespass brought death to reign, one man's obedience brings life. 
Romans 18, 19, he ends it off on this. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act, everybody say, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So when it comes to salvation, justification, righteousness, and life, does it come from two men? Does it say in that scripture, by two men's obedience, by two people's obedience, Jesus was obedient, and now you must also be obedient? Does it say that righteousness comes by the obedience of two people? Or does it say by one man? You see, that's why this is for everyone. Because who Jesus saves is not the good, but the dead. It's people who couldn't do anything to save themselves, who couldn't, do, who couldn't be religious enough or righteous enough or good enough, but don't worry, because by one man's obedience, you have been made righteous. That's the free gift of God. That's the gospel. Is it scandalous? Absolutely. If I preach this gospel, people should be wanting to stone me right now, going, no, 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 I don't know if I can believe this stuff. No, 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 no. That's what they said about Paul. I'm in good company if you feel that way about me. They actually did stone him. They thought he was dead. He got up and carried on preaching. Had a bit of a headache, but he carried on. Right? Because the gospel is the gospel, and it declares... You cannot save yourself. And it's not your obedience that makes you right with God. It is all about Jesus. It's all from Him. This justification wasn't brought about by our good works or our obedience to the law. Otherwise, the verse would have read, so by the obedience of two men, you have been made righteous. But it tells us that it comes through Jesus. So what is our obedience? What is our, if you want to be perfectly obedient to God, where does it start? What does it look like? It starts by believing in Jesus. Our perfect obedience is by our faith in what Jesus has done in being perfectly obedient. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, his obedience becomes our obedience. Every step he took in obedience to God, every, mo every way in which he fulfilled the law becomes the way that we obeyed God and that we have fulfilled the law. You see, what happens then is that you no longer identify with Adam, with the earthly self, with the man formed from the dust, but you identify with the other man, Jesus. Your identity is no longer in the, the broken, sinful, separated man who is toiling the ground in order to see fruit come forth from it. You are now identified with Christ, who is the perfect obedience towards God. The perfect righteousness, the perfect man. And we identify with him. Our faith is in him. We are in Christ, hidden in God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You can ask me today, Adrian, have you fulfilled the law completely? And have you obeyed God so completely 
that you can walk confidently with him? And my answer is yes. I have. I'm, I, I'm completely righteous on every single point. I've completely fulfilled the law. Me, here. Yeah, I've completely fulfilled it. Although it wasn't me. It was Christ in me. So I'm righteous before God. Not because I'm good, but because I've been, I've received the free gift. And that's the way that God relates to me now. As the one who is in Christ. That's the way God relates to you now if your faith is in Jesus. He relates to you according to who you are in Jesus. And I love where it says in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. We reign in this life. There's an abundance of grace. There's the gift of righteousness for us to reign. Where death reigned over us, we now reign over death. You see, all that sin that we've been struggling with, all those things that we've been dealing with, all that difficulty that we, that we face when we come up against our imperfections, here's the good news. You now reign over death because of the grace of God. Through Jesus, we reign. We can obey God, we can walk with God, we can do what's in our hearts, we can, we can, we can answer the call of God in our lives because of the grace that he has given us. That's why our lives as Christians can look different because we don't have to accept what the world dishes up to us anymore. We don't have to accept what the flesh uh, points us towards anymore. We can walk free, not ruled by the brokenness of this world, but in triumph in every situation. You might be saying today that that's not my experience. That's not my experience. I'm still suffering in this world and I still experience hardship and I, I, I don't see victory in my life abounding and, and, and coming forth at every moment. And what I wanna encourage you to do is to identify a little bit less with Adam and a little bit more with Jesus. Identify a little bit less with, with your brokenness and, and your weakness and, and all of those things, although we know about them, and identify with who you are in Christ because that's where your victory lies. Does that make sense this morning? I want to show you one final photo. As I was doing my message, I just thought about this photo. Because it says, now the grace of God reigns over death. The grace of God reigns over death. And I thought about this photo, this classic photo of Muhammad Ali standing over Sunny Liston. And just, I mean, that's victory. I wanted to put little labels in, but if you can just imagine right now, next to Muhammad Ali's face, the word grace, and next to Sonny Liston on the floor, the word death. Grace reigns over death. Death is defeated in our lives, and so we can live in a brand new way. And this is for everyone. Adam was the father of all people. Jesus is the savior of all people. It's for everyone. No one's excluded. We're completely righteous in him. And all that it requires of us is to put our faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's it. That's how we're saved. That's how we're made right. That's how we reign in this life. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning.